0: The Bookthinger podcast is a lively discussion about romance books, culture, and compelling fantasies. Kate Guthbert and Jodie McAllister join us for episode 65, recorded at the Romance Writers Conference in Sydney. Bookthinger would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this episode was recorded, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We also acknowledge the contributions of Australia's Indigenous people to our shared literary heritage.
1: Welcome to the Book Thingo Podcast. Talking about books we love, especially
2: romance. Kill a fairy fast on the Book Thingo Podcast.
0: Welcome back to the Book Thingo Podcast. I'm Kat Mayo from bookthingo.com.au an Aussie blog for romance readers, and I've finally wrestled the microphone away from Rudy and Gabby. There have been quite a lot of life developments among the Book Thingo podcast team, but we're trying our best to keep up our fortnightly schedule. That said, the best way to make sure you're getting new episodes as they're released is to subscribe or follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. In this episode, I chat with Kate Cuthbert and Jodie McAllister. Kate was the Managing Editor of Escape Publishing and is now Program Manager at Writers Victoria. Jodie McAllister is a literary historian at Deakin University, an author of young adult fiction, and one of our co-bloggers at Book Thingo. From punishing kisses to conversations about condoms, the romance genre tends to reflect our cultural conventions and our anxieties. So Kate, Jody, and I talk about how we can keep romance hopeful and joyful, even if the conventions of your subgenre are dark. You can find information on the titles and authors we talk about in this episode by going to bookthingo.com.au slash podcast and clicking on episode number 65. And if you're on Twitter, feel free to live tweet while listening to the show using the hashtag BTpod. We love reading your tweets.
1: So the keynote address was called Consenting Adults, and it actually came from a panel pitch that I had pitched to the conference organizers last year sometime. I read my slush pile, and a lot of the times I'll say, look, these are the things that are coming through my slush pile that might be something that you want to talk about because it's something that a lot of authors are struggling with or or like a, a theme that's developing or emerging And one of the things that I was seeing sort of in a post-Fifty Shades of Grey, like post-erotica market was there was a real shift in how sex was being written. And we saw a lot of really, really dark tropes, a lot of really dark tropes come through. It seemed like what was being considered sexy also had to be quite dark at the same time, and there wasn't, there wasn't an, an equal balancing to, you know, fun sex, joyful sex, consenting sex in some cases. So I knew about the sex positivity movement, and I thought, well, that might be something that would be a nice frame for a panel, and we can get authors who, who write that kind of consenting, respectful, but also joyful and playful and, and still quite sexy sex to talk about the ways to do that. In the current world that we live in now but the organizers thought that it might work better as an address and that's how it came about well it worked
0: brilliantly as an address I already heard from several people who have been talking about like is the transcript going to be published somewhere you know was there a recording because everybody kind of wants to hear it again because if you look at the tweet stream from your keynote there are just so many sort of motivational like manifesto type statements and everyone's just kind of got really energized by it and I think it was a really great start to the conference.
2: Not a moment, it was a movement.
0: Yes <laughs> um, so Jody, your academic field is around history as well as literature and in particular popular romance. So the history of popular romance has had a history of stories that play around with consent Um, some of our you know a lot of the older stories are really quite dark as well and you know we talk about those old old school rapish romances so what do we know about how consent plays out? In romance historically.
2: The reason there is so much rape in older romances and I'm not just talking here about we always talk about the flame and the flower and sweet savage love and the air quotes bodice rippers from the 1970s but even if we go back further into the genre's history and we look at blockbusters like uh, The Shake by E.M. Hull in 1919 which really was kind of the The Fifty Shades of, like, 100 years before Fifty Shades was The Shake. And it was super rapey. And there were huge problems around consent in these books because if you had a woman consent to sex on the page, she could no longer be considered a virtuous heroine. So the only way that people could have women, uh, feel you know, enjoying sex or having sexual pleasure on the page or in the story and not have to die afterwards was if they didn't decide to do it they had no choice in the matter and that choice was taken away so in a way it was like you know I don't want to say it's having the cake and eating it too because it's actually negative it's like okay that metaphor doesn't work no cake no eating (laughs) but um, uh, it's late on the the last day of the conference here But yeah, that's one of the reasons why there's been historically so many problems around consent in the romance. So even as we move into the 70s, this is the same time as second wave feminism is raging and there are all these discussions around rape. This is a cultural flashpoint at the moment and things like the issues of marital rape are being discussed. And romance in its own way is responding to some of that because just because there's, you know, someone saying, hey, guess what, guys, rape is actually terrible and bad doesn't mean that a switch is automatically flipped in people's heads. And so kind of some of the sexual politics of those older books uh, were a way of dealing with that because just because someone tells you that, you know yeah, okay, you can't, this isn't sexy, this isn't sexy. You've been conditioned to think that this is how masculinity and femininity operate. You know, the man is the conqueror, the woman is the conquered, the man pursues, the woman surrenders. And that's been ingrained, ingrained, ingrained into you. And so that was something that romance had to kind of work out. And over the first 10-ish years of kind of from the flame and the flower onwards, I think romance went through uh, almost like a subliminal discussion I mean, I wasn't born then, so I don't know if any actual discussions came about, but uh, I think Carol Thurston writes about in her book, The Romance Revolution, that by, I think it's 1981, at a Romance Writers of America conference, or it might have been Romantic Times, I'm not sure, one of the big conferences, uh, authors had agreed, no more rape, but obviously in the 80s, you've got lots of rapey books Mm -hmm two and in category romance at the same time we have the romance wars going on with more and more sexual content being added so I guess what I'm trying to say here is that sexual politics are being worked out in romance as women realize they're allowed to consent to sex and I think one of the reasons why kind of dubious consent has been romanticized is because often women don't have the language to be sexual agents they haven't been socialized that way so if someone kind of forces that on you that takes some of that work away Mm. which in real life is horrifying but you can understand how that kind of works as a textual pleasure but this is where kate's keynote came in because she was absolutely right this isn't something that we you know should necessarily be perpetuating even though there are clearly still people that you know find this sexy this is something that you know we need to speed this conversation up a little bit we need to move towards a a world and a place where women do feel capable of saying yes I want this and not being silent because they don't have the language to say yes. So then this is really interesting to me
0: because the popularity of these dark romances tells me that there is a reader appetite for these types of sort of high-tension, hyper-masculine type books. How does our feminism as readers and writers intersect with that? And is it fair to expect the authors
1: to necessarily reflect that? I mean, something that romance does really well in terms of sexuality is it works really hard not to yuck somebody else's yum And I think we need to recognize that there is a spectrum of sexuality and sexual desire. And I don't think that we're that far away from that history of women needing to have sex forced upon them in order to enjoy it. There's still a lot of aggression that's put out against women who are confident in their sexuality. There's uh, the dichotomy between the good girls and the bad girls. I can't remember who said it. I think it was Elizabeth Rolls yesterday in her discussion with Tesla Sue who were talking about this idea of a clean romance versus a dirty romance and that clean romance doesn't have sex as if sex is something dirty. There is still a lot of that going on. I also (laughs) read a really interesting article recently that suggested that hyper-masculine dominating person who, you know, hero who knows your body better than you do, is a really compelling fantasy for women who are at the moment taking on everything, you know, trying to be every woman with their job and the family and the domestic duties and being on top of your finances and knowing that your super is all consolidated to have somebody come in and just be like, I am going to take care of you 100% in this way. And you don't have to worry about anything. That's a super compelling fantasy. I respond to that fantasy. <laughs> and you're right, it's not really fair to suggest that all romance authors have to take this on board, but at the same time, if we don't, who's going to?
0: So is it that we're looking for a better balance across the um, the
1: spectrum of work that we see in romance? I don't think that dark and and aggressive or angsty sex has to be consent-free. Like, it really bothers me in those... Books, sorry, and I'm speaking in, in gross generalities because this is not true across all of those books, but there was a growing trend where the heroines were prey to the heroes. And as a reader, and not just as somebody with my own feminist and political views, but as a reader, I was deeply, deeply uncomfortable about the women being treated as prey in these books. And I don't think that that needs to happen. You can still have, you know, aggressive, dominant sex where there is consent you know where that the woman is participating because this is what she wants this is what she finds sexy this is what she you know responds to i mean you don't have to sit down and write out a contract but a check in <laughs> at some point you know even if it's is this right, what you want yes off you go you um, know so then
0: where so then how do we get how do we make room for scenes like the punishing kiss the angry sex, is it a matter of crafting a story and a narrative around that that works out the consent issues maybe afterwards and shows that, like, I, I don't know, I just I find it really interesting because I also love some of the hyper-masculine mm-hmm. stories and I love some of the angry sex in some of the stories, but it depends so heavily on the execution. Mm-hmm. And sometimes as a reader I f- actually find it difficult to pinpoint what exactly worked with one book and didn't work with another book, even though they have very similar types of issues? I don't, I don't have all the
1: answers to all oh, of the questions. Oh, why not, Kate? <laughs> <laughs> um, but but um, the thing I think that I'm hoping the most that will come out of the discussion that's been about this keynote is that when writers sit down to write, they will be making deliberate choices. So if they deliberately choose to go into the punishing kiss, instead of just relying on it as, you know, something that just comes out of them, if they're making that choice, then then okay, you know. But just be aware of what you're doing and and have reasons for doing so, as opposed to just relying so heavily on that back history. And this is what a genre convention is, so I'm going to make him kiss her even though she doesn't want it. Like, think about what you're doing. So it's having a
2: conversation about what's sexy and why we think it's sexy. So when we think about the genre convention of the punishing kiss, for instance, why do we find that sexy? What's going on there? It's about, it's not necessarily saying, no, dark romance, get rid of that. That's the worst. Throw the entire genre in the bin. Because like you said before, we don't want to yuck other people's yums. And there are very, very valid discursive and social reasons why a lot of those fantasies are compelling to women. Mm. And, I mean, I'm, I'm not interested and I know you're not interested in telling women that their fantasies are wrong. No, absolutely That they're, not. you know, deviant. It's really instead of going, okay, this is, this is shorthand, this is something that everyone understands when I say that, is stopping thinking and going, okay, why is this sexy and what's going on underneath here? Is there a different way to frame this in a way where it's – it's clear that everyone's into it. Yeah. So how well has this
0: sort of been interrogated in the scholarship? It's specifically in romance fiction. Within romance fiction, so I'm not talking so much about sort of people outside romance fiction studying it and putting their sort of assumptions on it, but actual readers of romance are doing academic study
2: looking at some of these problematic areas. Well, It's very, very new. There are some scholars over the last 10 years that are doing work on feminist politics and romance. But I think some of the the problems that arise sometimes is that people want to make enormous claims for the whole genre or they want to study one book or a couple of books really, really closely. And, you know, that's always so interesting, but there's sometimes not a lot you can work out for it. So I think the scholarly field is finding its feet in this respect. It's definitely something that's being thought about, though, because, I mean, kind of the story of romance scholarship is kind of early scholarship that's like ah this is the worst you know it starts when you sink into his arms and it ends with your arms in his sink kind of <laughs> oh my god, of, oh my of, god. Yeah. I've never heard that before that is amazing yeah I'm trying to, that's a quote obviously I didn't make that up where was I going with that so that was kind of 80s scholarship of of romance or well, not not all 80s I think Janice, Janice Radway yeah, yeah yeah well she gets thrown <laughs> in with that a lot I think she's yeah. a little bit more nuanced than that but like still she's very much on the 80s bandwagon and then there was almost an overcorrection where it wanted to be like no actually romance is great romance is the best romance is and when you it's great to see this positive view of romance but you need to still leave a little bit of room to be critical because you know every genre has its little areas that need unpicking and unpacking and romance is no different. We've mostly talked about dark romance but do you see similar
0: issues in sort of normal romance, non-dark romance across the other subgenres.
1: There's a really good example of a book where the hero's in a super good mood. So he's walking along the street, he just grabs a woman and kisses her and then continues on his way. And in the book, it's played as something like quirky and flirty and fun and, you know, it's, it's meant to be playful and it is.
0: But- to some extent, do you think that's a function of current thinking around what's acceptable so something that might have passed for being okay 10 or 20 years ago, now that we're kind of more aware of the impact, we're kind of like that's not I think something absolutely.
1: you can do. And I think one of the things that I said yesterday is that we have to forgive ourselves for not knowing what we didn't know. But now we know. And one of the things that I find so problematic about the academic study in romance is that we're taking the things that we know now and applying them to books that were written then and there's always value in looking back at history. Of course there is. But at the same time, it's really hard to critique a 90s romance novel, knowing what we do now about microaggressions, for example, and bodily autonomy, and, and even just being aware of those things in a way that we weren't aware even five years ago. So now we do better. You know, Now we move forward, and we accept that that was what we did the best that we could at the time when we were doing it. Now we can do better
2: was one of the things that was so great about your keynote, Kate, was how generous it was in that respect. Uh, not being like, okay, you've all screwed this up. You've written some some real bad stuff. Now flagellate yourselves. You're like, no, look, it's fine. You know, the the cultural conversation had not caught up at that point. And we, you know, to some extent, we have to be responsible for unpacking our own, you know, programming. But if you don't know that that's what's if there's that ideology you haven't questioned or you haven't been able to question and then suddenly, you know, it's like the curtain has been ripped across the window. There's a better metaphor that I was going for there. I can't remember. What it, I don't <laughs> we know are what not it doing well with metaphors <laughs> No, today. at least that one wasn't a bad <laughs> joke, a dirty joke. <laughs> but, yeah, now it's about not looking back and going, oh, no,
1: it's about looking forward and going, oh, yes. And I think especially because politically and culturally right now, inclusivity and empathy and compassion seem to be fallen by the wayside a little bit and I think that the romance community is one of the most inclusive communities that exist but we haven't been inclusive all the time to everybody and you know we have all of the tools that we need in this community to be the leader in this regard and I've always been somebody who wants to do better every day at whatever I'm doing. And I love this community so much. And I just, I see the potential. I see our potential. And I really just wish that we would rise to it.
0: So that leads nicely to one of the themes of your keynote, which is that romance gives, is all about hope for the heroine. Mm-hmm. And Jody, you wrote a blog post a while back that talks about romance as being a genre that celebrates joy it really fascinates me that you kind of hit on something that's quite similar Mm. hope and joy and sort of a sense of optimism for the heroine who we expect to win at the end does winning for the heroine look different now in romance than it did,
2: say, 10, 20, 30 years ago. So a lot of the work I did when I was doing my doctoral work looked at... uh, I looked at the whole history of the category romance and of kind of Mills and Boone's output. And if you look at Mills and Boone from the 1930s, they're about heroines trapped in terrible marriages who fall in love with someone that is not their husband. And often their actual husband is quite sexually aggressive. That's the sex that... We don't see it. It's kind of off the page, but that's the sex that you know that's happening and the heroine is clearly not enjoying it. And the hero is this kind of young, boyish, non-threatening figure. And those, like, the happy ending is tied up with the heroine being able to escape that marriage. And the reason that had such resonance in Britain in the 30s, these are all British books, was because until 1937, uh, women couldn't trigger a divorce, really. I think it was you needed to prove adultery plus one other reason. So if, (laughs) if your husband was beating you, sorry, like it was really, really hard for a woman to get a divorce. So for these women to be able to escape these marriages was a really, really potent fantasy. In the 40s, we saw these really uh, beautiful domestic books that didn't mention the war at all. And Mills and Boone was the only publisher in Britain that managed to maintain its paper ration. And it was on the grounds that uh, it provided morale to the women on the home front. So what that happy ending has looked like has responded to historical and social and cultural circumstances. So I think – and we shouldn't just think about this in terms of time. What What's a happy ending in Britain versus the States versus Australia versus all the other different territories? Like, I mean, I can't speak to romance in other languages, but I would imagine that there are some cultural nuances there. Definitely uh, changes. And I remember uh, actually at the recent International Association for the Study of Popular Romance conference, UCAT were talking with Mina and from the Philippines and she was talking about how there's no marriage. No, there is marriage. Oh, yes, that's right. At the end of her books, that's not tied up in the happy ending because it's so hard to get a divorce in the Philippines. And I think what the happy ending means is there's a really hopeful promise beyond just the promise of a good man and great sex in there, there's a, like a social promise, there's a cultural promise about what that world will look like. It's one that's not going to limit the heroine. one that's not going to trap her. And I think that's really important. So one of,
0: one of the quotes from your speech yesterday, <laughs> it's a good quote, <laughs> is, the crinkle of a condom or an all-clear from the clinic should become
1: cliché. Are we seeing more condoms
0: in romance? Or I mean, is it still considered unsexy? No,
1: from, I think from the 90s forward, I think maybe it's about 50-50. We had a little bit of a reprieve there with the paranormals because it was just assumed that nothing, they couldn't carry disease. How magic works. Yeah, and yeah. I read a couple of fairy ones where they like, would just say a spell beforehand and afterwards <laughs> just to take care of any unwanted issues. Um, look, condoms and um, discussions about... Um, safe sex, have become more normalized, but they're not 100% normalized. They don't show up in every book or in every scene. I don't actually... I, I was using hyperbole a little bit there. I don't think that you actually have to have a discussion before every single sex scene. Well,
0: I was talking to Amy Andrews, who I actually was the one who tweeted it. I it's because I looked at her <laughs> because she hates putting condoms. Well, she was saying, our assumption at the moment is that if you don't mention the condom in the scene, there is no condom. Mm-hmm. But what she would like to see is that if you don't mention a condom, we just assume there's a condom. Mm. <laughs> she just doesn't like the disposal of the condoms because it takes away from the scene. So are we going to get to that point, do you think, where the condom is a given and it doesn't have to be explicitly mentioned, just like you don't always have to mention that you took off your socks to get I mean, naked?
1: I would hope so. I do hope so. I don't think we're there yet. Do we place a value on sex without condoms? Or is yes. It... Yeah, right. okay. Particularly in romance novels. I think that there is there is a hierarchy of sex and going bareback is seen as, you know, more romantic and a deeper connection. And clearly if you're having unprotected sex, then that means that this is the, the you know, He's the one for you. And-,
2: and I think it's bound up with ideas of trust. Yes, Like, oh, I, I trust you enough to have unsafe sex with you. And it's like, that's cool. You could still get pregnant. <laughs> but uh, I, I write YA, just kind of segueing into my own career. So you know, for me, it was quite important to represent safe sex when my two protagonists finally do it. And um, I think kind of ties back to what we were saying about having a conversation about what's sexy. I was mm-hmm. like, okay, how can I make contraception sexy Mm. and it became part of the sexual proposition like the heroine's sister is like okay if you're gonna have sex here's a whole lot of contraception and the heroine kind of uses it she's like hey hero i've got all this contraception as part of the like want to bone sort of (laughs) uh you know (laughs) that conversation so that addresses (laughs) uh, contraception (laughs) and birth control
0: But what about STDs? Like, do we actually do address it? Like, and even in paranormals, like, what if there's, like, magical STDs? Historicals. Like, rakes in
1: historicals always makes me worry about syphilis. Like, come on, guys. Especially because sometimes they'll say, oh, I'm on the pill. Like, okay. But you don't, you know, he might have chlamydia. Chlamydia is very hard to diagnose. You can't see it. And it's rampant at the moment. So... Protecting yourself is important. And and I do think you're right. It's, it's so tied up in this idea of trust. But it, it almost counterbalances the heroine's owning of her sexuality. Because in many ways, if a heroine, you know, wants to have sex, has a willing partner, she might not know him well enough to trust him. And in romance, of course, you're like, well, clearly he's the hero. So we all know that he's okay. But it's still that normalizing behavior that makes me uneasy. Because I learned a lot about sex from reading romance novels when I was younger. A lot. <laughs> and I didn't learn about condoms. I learned that if you trust somebody, if you're having sex with them, then clearly you, you should trust them already. And you should, you know, and it took a lot of unlearning to roll that back a little bit. Yeah. And one thing,
2: my PhD was on representations of virginity loss. So a little bit different than when you've got kind of you know, adults, sexually Mm. mature adults having sex. But one idea that came up over and over again was that talking about sex is not sexy. Mm. Negotiating sex is not sexy. It should just happen and that places the woman often in a place of passivity and vulnerability and extreme vulnerability yeah and the idea that you know kind of negotiating what you want and saying what you want and providing direction is taking the spontaneity out and Mm. I think that's something that comes up with criticism of uh, contraception as well it's like ooh, it's not spontaneous it's like well what is spontaneity necessarily Romantic is that necessarily sexy? Let's think about this a little bit.
1: Well, it's tied up in gender roles as well, I think, because if you have a woman who is saying, "This is what I want," this is, you know, this is how we're going to do it. This is these are the ways that I see this happening. Then there's this idea that she's taking the control of the encounter, and the idea of the man being the dominant aggressor. there's almost like this idea that it's unnatural Mm -hmm. for a woman to know what to know what she wants and to be able to to verbalise it, and to want to have control over the encounter as well.
0: In your speech, you talked about romance as a vehicle for female resistance. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I wanted to ask you both, is that a realistic proposition for romance? Do you think the readership has the appetite to consume the types of stories that will challenge the way they think about their feminism?
1: When I made that speech, I wasn't suggesting that we go out and write like a whole swath of Me Too romances. I think that you're bumping up against this idea that all romance books have to be issues books, and that's not what I'm saying at all. In fact, I actually find romance books that are issues books, I find them less enjoyable than I find romances that are written because they're character-driven or plot-driven. What I really actually want to see is that in every romance book that goes out there, that these choices are made deliberately and that we're thinking about it. So it's not that I want everyone to go out and write a, a workplace romance that deals with power structures and HR nightmares and, you know, normalized gender roles. It's, it's more that when you're writing your workplace romance or if you're writing a historical romance or whatever story it is that you're writing, this thought process is woven into it because you as a writer are thinking about it. And because you have that in your mind and that you're aware that this is an area of influence that you have and little tiny choices that you make all the way through are made deliberately. So questioning or like looking
0: more closely at some of the shorthand things and and, um, situations that we use in romance and that we read in romance.
2: Yeah. And kind of following on from that, I think this kind of has to happen in a way because our cultural conversations have changed. Mm-hmm. With the advent of the Me Too movement, I think we're a lot more aware sometimes of the politics of certain situations, particularly the power politics between very powerful men and uh, vulnerable women. So Harvey Weinstein is a mm-hmm. really good example here. So with that kind of in the forefront of our mind, I know that's changed the way I read billionaire romance mm-hmm. like and Trump as well. Like it, They make me quite uncomfortable a lot of the time because we can see this power dynamic played out and I'm not some magical unicorn that's going to be made uncomfortable by this. I think a lot of people will. Mm. So it's not just that, you know, we, we need to be forward thinking and we need to be making this change so we can teach women what's sexy. Women are doing this on their own and this is, you know, what's sexy is necessarily going to change at a cultural level. And so romance needs to reflect that to continue being relevant to the marketplace, I think, anyway. And uh oh, just brief anecdote anyone that's ever heard me talk knows that I love the bold and the beautiful more than anything else in the history of the world and one thing that I've observed over the last little while they've got a, a media mogul billionaire hero who's very very dominating in the way a billionaire hero in you know a kind of a billionaire romance might be and they've systematically kind of Revealed the toxic nature of his character over the last year. You know, he started pursuing his son's wife really, really aggressively. And she, like, almost gave in very recently. And then she was like, No, I'm divorcing your son, but I'm not going to be with you. I'm going to be single. And this was this moment of intense narrative triumph where he didn't get anything that he wanted. And she made the choice that was right to her. And even though that wasn't a romantic happy ending, and it's obviously not an ending because it's a soap and soaps don't end, it was still a a really potent moment of triumph that I'm not sure you could pull off in a soap even a year ago. So that cultural conversation is changing very, very much. So a question for both of you. Um, I wanted to ask
0: you if you've read any author's works recently that you think is starting to do some of this work.
1: This question's always really hard for me because the vast majority of the reading that I do is my slush pile. But I think it was Rudy, maybe, who introduced me to Talia Hibbert. And I started sort of reading her books very slowly when I had a couple of minutes to spare. And I can't remember the first one, the name, the title of the first one. We'll put it in the show notes where there's a Scandinavian prince who goes to a school. He's thinking of... um, investing in only to meet the heroine and he kisses her without permission without everything else and it causes like that becomes the plot it causes an enormous amount of trouble it changes the trajectory of both of their lives I think it might have been called the princess trap and the whole conversation is about him not being forthright and and not taking her autonomy into account when he makes his decisions and and you know she calls him on it she absolutely calls him on it but it's a romance and they you know they sort it out but the rest of the book is about him learning about the consequences of his actions and the way that he has completely changed her life and not necessarily for the better because he didn't respect her autonomy that makes it sound so boring it's a beautiful book (laughs) it's so fun and lovely and the sex is so hot for me, I'm several
2: months behind everyone else on this, but I finally read uh Alicia Rise trilogy, the um Oh yes. the Chandler Kane trilogy, Chandler Oka Kane trilogy, which I I'm obsessed with, partially because it's so soapy and you all know how I feel about soap opera. But uh, the first book in that one with with Nicholas and Livy, like the kind of premise is they've been meeting once a year for like 10 years to have sex and they don't talk and then they don't talk for the whole year. She just texts him, okay, this is where I'm going to be and he turns up. And the romance doesn't start till they start talking, till they start negotiating, till they really discuss what they want. And this becomes an ongoing theme throughout the whole book. So in the next one with Sadia and Jackson, he's often quite uncomfortable with talking and he's got quite intense social anxiety. And so, you know, them being able to express what they want to each other is a huge – it's really – beautifully romantic in in the piece the fact that he's got this language to be able to speak to her when he finds it so intimidating being around people a lot of the time and then the third book with uh, Gabe and Eve there's this uh this big age difference and he's like oh no I- I'm the older man I'm gonna be exploiting you and she's like okay this is what's gonna happen here's all these you know these things I'm an agent here and it's I'm not normally into age gap romances very much because I do feel that power differential is off a lot of the time. But in that one, it's so great. Like that's worked out so, so beautifully. So sorry, Alicia Rye, for being well behind the eight ball on reading these ones, (laughs) but you nailed it. They're so good.
0: That's all we have time for in this episode. Huge thanks to our long-suffering audio producer, Rudy Bremer. You can find the show notes for episode 65 at bookthingo.com.au slash podcast. If this is the first time you've heard the show and would like to hear more, the best way to get all our new episodes as soon as they're released is by subscribing. You can do this for free through Apple Podcasts, Overcast, or your favorite podcast app. We're now also listed on Spotify. Just search for Book Thingo. If you really, really, really enjoy the show, we'd love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, just like our Burbank from the USA, who gave us five stars and left the following feedback. I just discovered this podcast a few weeks ago and am binging through all of the episodes. I love hearing the conversations on the show breaking down the romance genre preconceptions and I also love the real author recommendations. Thank you for this show. R. Burbank, welcome to the Book Thingo family, and I hope you enjoy the books we recommended in today's episode. If you don't use Apple Podcasts, feel free to contact us via email at podcast at bookthingo.com.au with your feedback, suggestions, and recommendations. Let me give a quick shout out to Roxanne, who sent us an email back in September last year to let us know how much she enjoys the podcast and especially the historical romances that we recommend. Thank you so much, Roxanne. Roxanne also asked if we have a review of Shadow and the Star on the blog. Unfortunately, we don't. But if you're a fan of Laura Kinsale, you should check out the lightning reviews of every single one of her books at the Smart Bitches Trashy Books blog. I'll include a link in the show notes. In the next episode, I chat with contemporary author Amy Andrews about the Women of War series featuring an all-female professional AFL team. In the meantime, please visit us at bookfingo.com.au and have a fabulous fortnight of reading.